This morning, I have the distinct blessing of delivering our second of four topical sermons on stewardship. So I would ask at this time that you would turn to Psalm 24. We're looking at the first, we'll be looking at the first two verses there. And then while you're turning there, that's on page 458, by the way, if you're utilizing a pew Bible. And while you're turning there, I would ask that you also turn or place your fingers at Samuel, 1 Samuel 1. Psalm 24, one, verses 1 through 2. This is God's holy and inerrant word. So let us give careful attention to it as it is being read. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Our Lord and our God, again, these are two verses. They might be little in their orientation, but huge in their implication. That which you've communicated here has so many implications for our lives. And so we ask that as we open this means of grace that you have provided for us, to grow us in the image of our Lord, that you would take that which we will hear from your word this morning and give us the illuminating minds to know that which you have revealed to us so that we would indeed grow in the image of our Lord and Savior. Grab hold of us and let the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Again, I do have the distinct pleasure of continuing on this topic of stewardship. Now, last week we dealt with the issue of time, our perspective, our grasp and management of it. Among other things, we heard of Moses in Psalm 90 telling us, teach us to number our days so that we would give our hearts to obtaining wisdom. Well, this week as we visit several verses or short passages, we'll be focusing on the blessing of children and friendship and our stewardship in those particular relationships. You see, the scriptures have much to teach us or show us concerning those relationships and how we should both view them and manage them. The operative word here being manage. For after all, that is what stewardship is. The managing of resources that belong to someone who has entrusted those resources to another. You heard me saying that during the baptism. For those of us who know and profess Christ, the scriptures explicitly tell us that we are not our own, but we were bought with a price to the end that we should glorify God in our bodies. We know this to be so if we're Christians but the question at hand is, is this applicable to all things, to every sphere of our existence? Well, brothers and sisters, according to the opening set of verses, the answer is a resounding yes. Read with me again, if you will, Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2. Here it would be a good place uh, to let you know first that my objective this morning will be to highlight some principles that God has laid out in Scripture to guide us in our endeavors to care for that which he has entrusted to us. 
So I'm going to talk about children again at first and then follow that up with friendship with the time that we have left. So our first of three principles then, as you might have already surmised, is from the womb to the tomb, our children belong to God. Look again at Psalm 24. They read, these verses read, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, fullness thereof, is saying everything in it, everything in the earth is God's. The world and those who dwell, those, all humans, all of us who dwell therein. And then it tells us why. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now verse 2 is not a scientific statement concerning creation, but rather just a poetic way of saying that God created everything. It is he who by his word brought everything into existence, every single thing that there is. He who by his wisdom caused all things to flow in an orderly manner. It is he who created the man and and placed him in the garden, gave him a job, gave him a comparable helper, woman, equal in essence but different in role and any mandate he gave them a mandate in Genesis 1:28 we find that be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over that which he God created God owns it all but he gave man you see managerial responsibility over it now don't miss this What was included in that mandate in the first part was to be fruitful and multiply. That is talking about children. Procreation then would mean the means by which God uh, would bring children into the world. Procreation is the means, but God is the effective cause. Or as James 1.17 puts it, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. And again, Psalm 127.3, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now the understanding that our children belong to God is beautifully illustrated in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where we find Hannah, the mother of Samuel, desperately wanting a child but unable to conceive She was mercilessly mocked for not being able to produce and and she unceasingly sought the Lord with, with all her heart to the end that he would meet this great need that she had. And he did for his glory and for his purpose. And in verses 27 and 28 of that first chapter, we then hear these words. For this child, I pray, she said, And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. It was God who caused that child to be. And don't be misled into thinking that the two instances of the words lent to the Lord means that the child primarily belonged to Hannah and she loaned the child to God. Those words lent in this passage actually means dedicated to. She was given back to God that which God had given her stewardship over. And this in recognition of the fact that the child was primarily God's own and not hers. And notice the duration. 
as long as he lives, those verses say, from the womb to the tomb, he was God's child entrusted to Hannah for a season. Our children, brothers and sisters, belong to God. And I'm just going to say this right here before I move on. Brothers and sisters, there is no place in Scripture, either explicitly or implicitly, that says or affirms the words or assertion, my body, my choice. Those words are not coming from the Father of lights, but from the Prince of darkness who deceitfully appears as an angel of life. Now, why, you ask? Why am I compelled to make this statement? In the middle of last year, the Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview released an adult churchgoer's social issues and worldview survey. That survey found that one out of every six regular churchgoers in the United States has had, paid for, or encouraged an abortion. Brothers and sisters, that is not in keeping with the principle of biblical stewardship. Moving on. Now we might not permanently leave our children in the place of worship as Hannah did. But since they're God's children, we have the same responsibility to raise them to be who and what he created them to be. Our Westminster Confession of Faith rightly declares that our Lord created us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Now here's the thing, you cannot experientially glorify or enjoy that which you do not know. So based on God's own instruction, our covenant children's greatest need is to know him. Thus our greatest task is to show him to them, to raise them in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the love that we show to our children in the lens is the lens by which they will see and comprehend the gospel. We can tell our children about God. Listen, we can tell our children about God all day long and every day on Sunday. But if the character of Christ is not visible for them to see in us, there will be deadly carnage, great carnage done to their souls. Charles Whitfield wrote what was probably the most impactful book I read during my completion of my undergraduate degree in family psychology. It was titled, Healing the Child Within, Discovery and Recovery for Adult Children of Dysfunctional Families. In that book, he asserted that children who grew up in households where the parent is an alcoholic or messed up in other areas are forced to place all their energy and focus on dealing with that parent or parents. So much so that the negative issues of their own heart that should be dealt with as a child are not dealt with. Thus, when they become an adult, the foolishness that scripture describes that is bound up in the heart of a child is still there. And therefore, you see people 30, 40, 50, 60 years old still acting in ways that are tragically juvenile, indicative of a foolish heart sinful and destructive. The children who have to suppress these things go out into the world and now they are themselves agents of destruction. 
This, among other reasons, is why the Apostle James, Paul rather, wrote, Parents, do not exasperate your children. And James, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. You see, it is instead the love that is patient, kind, not rude, not insisting on its own, is not irritable or resentful. Oh, why did I have these children? Oh, they're holding me back. Oh, they're so bad. Nah, this is love that bears all things, believe all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is the love that Christ had for us, how he acted and continues to act towards us, and how we are therefore to act towards those whom he has placed in our care. And it is when we live in this manner in the presence of our children that the soil is properly tilled for us to follow through on Deuteronomy 6, which tells us to diligently teach our children when we're sitting in the house, when we're walking by the way, when we lie down and when we rise. Keep them quorum Dale before the face of God that is. It is our responsibility to know them and grow them in the knowledge of their creator. Most of us, most of the time, this is not an easy task. You know that if you're a parent, you know that for the Bible, as I just mentioned, tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. They, like us, were born in sin, at enmity with God, bent on having their own way. We need no further proof of this sin nature than to ask ourselves, ask yourself this, at what age did you teach your child how to lie? how to be selfish, how to cheat. At what age did you treat them, any of them this? The answer is never. Instead, we have to pay heed to the end of the verse which tells us that the rod of correction will drive out the foolishness that is in their heart. We cannot be super self-focused on self to the sacrifice of our children, but we are to lay down our own lives for our children. Thus, God can use us in bringing them to himself. You see, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, we hear. And so we do the same in our stewardship. We discipline those whom we love, coupling love with our efforts to achieve God's aim in the life of our children. So in our stewardship, we have the responsibility to provide nurture and discipline with the goal in mind being to produce the reverence that the scripture declares is the beginning of knowledge. A wise son is that way because his parents poured into him by the stewardship that God gave them. Fear of the Lord of whom our goal is to get them to know is the beginning of knowledge. This is a parent's responsibility. Brothers and sisters, this is not the school's responsibility to steward your child. It is not the churches. It is not the civil government. It is that governance that God has established from the foundation of the world, the family, the parent, that is supposed to nurture and discipline. Everything else is in support of that. We as covenant family members are supporting you as you raise your child in the discipline and nurture. And so the question before us, if this is the case, as we talk about the implications of the things we're hearing, is how then does this affect your stewardship when it comes to figuring out where to place your child in terms of school? 
where to allow, what to allow your child to watch on television, whether or not they should have a phone or not, whatever the case may be, I am not going to sit here and legalistically tell you this is what you should be doing, this is what you should be doing. You have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 4 says that every person, a steward is to be found faithful, and so you have to ask yourself that question, what does it look like to be faithful as I raise this child that God has given me for his glory? More than ever today, this is something that is very, very important to ask because you know all you have to do is look at the news and you know that when our children go off to school, the areas that they're going to in institutions are teaching them that which is antithetical to Scripture. Evolution is taught as fact. Multiple genders, you name it, all sorts of isms are out there. Everything is out there except biblicalism. And so how do we manage this? The third principle, moving on, the third principle of responsibility that I'd like to put before you is this as it relates to stewardship of our children. We have a responsibility to allow our children to fulfill God's will for their lives. They belong to God and therefore we have a responsibility not to make them do what we want but what God wants. Jim Elliott, full of zeal and glory for God's glory and the evangelization of his people left a promising life of ministry in the United States with his parents openly wondering and suggesting that he would be a great youth minister. He eventually arrived in Ecuador where he, upon meeting with a group of about 10 Huarani warriors, was killed by the very people that he set out to evangelize. But that's not how the story ended. His wife Elizabeth subsequently went and lived with the same people for two years bearing much of the fruit that her husband had envisioned. Had he not set out to do that, would she have done that? Would God's purposes have been fulfilled in that area? Eleven of the apostles that Jesus called to himself died cruel deaths. The other one was cast out to an island, Patmos, where he lived in less than pleasant conditions. Tradition has it that he was boiling oil and he survived. Sitting here today, then, we are evidence of the work of those men to whom the scriptures refer to as the foundation of the church with Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so question, would you be okay if your child had aspiration to serve God in a role that had high probability for death or persecution like those whom I just mentioned? How about if your child ended up being less prosperous than you financially, but the service that they were providing to God and, and man was something that hardly anyone else could do? Would you be okay with that? Or do you already have your mind made up concerning what your child will and is going to do? Are you a helicopter dad? I'm going to leave moms out today. <laughs> do we have the right to direct our children according to the dictates of our own hearts? Or does the scriptures we profess to be submitted to say otherwise? 
Raise a child in the way he or she should go, we're told in Proverbs 22.6. And when he or she is old, he or she will not depart from it. Now I've read quite a few commentaries and articles on that particular verse, and here's something that sticks out to me. Yes, we're supposed to raise our child in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. Yes, we're to pray and seek his or her regeneration and reconciliation with God above all things. Yes, all that and more. But can I suggest, like others have, that there's also an aspect of that verse that informs us that we are to pay attention to the way God has wired our children, to the way he has gifted them, and then support their growth and trajectory, the growth and trajectory that he has placed them on. It seems to me that if they belong to him, then this is exactly what we should be doing. Now, some of you that are close to me might have heard this already. But I remember when my son, Dean Jr., was around 11 years old, I, I really started trying to get him involved in sports. Now, in case you don't notice, both his mom and I were involved in all kinds of sports growing up. Both of us started playing basketball before we were 10 years old, and both of us were super competitive. There'd be times when we'd be in the yard trying to kill each other in whatever sport we played. So needless to say, I wanted my son to be like his old man. So I bought a regulation basketball goal and set it up with a big fiberglass backboard, set it up in, a, in our driveway and everything. And then I proceeded to go out there and, and be trying to play with him and stuff like that. And, and meanwhile, my daughter, who had a condition that she should not have been playing basketball, according to the doctors, was out there, let me, let me. And I'm like, nope, 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 get away, Delise, get away. And we moved her into playing piano instead, okay? And so then it came time, uh, uh, our daughter had a, a surgery to address the issue that she had. And, and even in the hospital bell, she was, I want to play basketball. And so we asked the doctor, and the doctor said, yep, she can play. And so we put our son and the daughter in, in basketball, in upward basketball. Many of you know what they train them doing, and then they play on Saturday. So lo and behold, the game, the, the day comes, the Saturday comes when the game starts and, and me and my wife are looking at each other like this when we're watching our son. Because everyone is out there playing hard and our son is at half court doing cartwheels. So we say, oh, you know, let's put him in soccer. So we put him in soccer. Everyone is out there kicking and running. Our son is out there looking at the clouds. So one day, we were in the yard giving up. And all of a sudden, our son starts running around and around the house. And we're like, what's going on? So finally, we get him to stop, and we find out that he got stung by a bee. Another time, he starts running around the house, and we find out he, what, what, he got hurt again. So we said, hey, let's put this boy in track. <laughs> Two years after that, he won the middle school championship in track and field. <laughs> Meanwhile, our daughter who went out to the upward basketball game, my wife and I looked at each other and our mouths dropped. She was dribbling the ball left, right, all over the place. She turned out to be the best basketball player in that particular league the very first time she played. Dean ended up excelling in track, went to the Naval Academy. Delise ended up with a full basketball scholarship. What if we had paid attention from the day one 
to how God had given them, what he had put in them. That same Delise went to school in a full scholarship, changed her major four times, graduated, and decided she wanted to be a nurse. Maybe we should have helped her by checking that out too. <laughs> so you see, God has wired our kids. And as part of our stewardship, we are to pay attention to the way that he has gifted them, to the things that he has put in them. We are supposed to guide them in the ways and the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, above all things, causing them to be reconciled to him. But in terms of their earthly stewardship, we are then to make sure that we cause them to go and to find and to see the way that they were created to be. And so Hannah did exactly that. So now with the time that I have left, I'd like for us to turn our attention to another area of stewardship that should be of great interest to all of us. And that's the stewardship of our friendships. I'm sure most of us in our lifetimes can recall or still have someone today who we would say fit the description of the person spoken of in Proverbs 18:24, which reads, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. As we hear those words, I'm sure some of us are thinking, that's exactly what I want to have. Someone who I can confide in, someone who I can trust, someone who can be there for me when I need them to be. This, we must admit, is how most of us are prone to think when it comes to relationships, particularly friendships. It's what I get from this relationship, what I get. What's in it for me? Now, while none of those wants are inherently bad in of themselves, the primary question I would suggest that we should be asking ourselves in light of who we are and whose we are is to what end? How can we best glorify God in this area of our lives and in our friendships? How can we do that? The quick and right answer to this question is by investing ourselves in others in ways that promote their growth in Christ and in their knowledge of him. In John 15, 15, we hear Jesus saying the following to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus fed the hungry, healed the sick, openly welcomed children, supped with sinners. In all things, one thing was clear. The mission was to make known to man the person of his father. And that is exactly what he indicated to his disciples in John 15, 15. So if we are in Christ, if we are ambassadors of Christ, then this is the modus operandi I would suggest that we should adopt. We should become what one author described as agents as transformational friendships. All our friendships should be geared towards introducing Christ, revealing Christ through our character. This, by the way, brothers and sisters, is keeping with true love, which does not insist on its own or seek its own. It's always consistent with what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2, his exhortation to not only look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Now note, it's interesting to note that the Philippians' exhortation is immediately followed by the example of Christ sacrificially giving himself up on our behalf. His sacrifice was absolutely central to our transformation into the new creations that 2 Corinthians 5 referred to us as. Now for an earthly picture of what this looks like, we need look no further than 1 Samuel chapter 17 through 15, where we find that Saul was anointed to be king, but he was the people's choice. And God anointed David to be king. Now the way that was, when you were made king, you made sure you got rid of all your enemies, even if they were family members and so on and so forth. But here comes Jonathan, and the word of God says that Jonathan's soul was knit to David. And what does Jonathan do? He takes off his robe. The person who was heir to the throne takes off his own robe and puts it on David and looks after David. He is the one that lets David know that his father means harm to him. He is the one that provided shelter for David, the one who was going to achieve and receive the most if David was gone. And yet he put aside his own and sacrificed for David. And as a result of that, we move forward into 2 Samuel 7 and we see the Davidic covenant where we're hearing that the throne, the scepter of Judah will not depart from the house of David. David is able to come into what God has given and established and ordained for him because, partly because of what Jonathan did. That is a picture, brothers and sisters, of who we should be. We should sacrifice ourselves so that we, those our brothers and sisters, can reach their potential in Christ. We are to exhort one another the more we see the day. And the closer you have as a friend, the greater you should do that and impact that person who is your friend in that way. Think about this for a second. Instead of saying, what can this person do for me? What about if two individuals in a great friendship said, what can I do for my brother? How can I have my brother to grow in Christ? How can I have my brother to run the race that's set before him? What about if both people are mutually thinking this way? By the way, that is what marriage is supposed to be. Both people mutually serving one another in the roles that God has given them. It becomes a thing of beauty when they're building the family, being the building blocks of society, moving things forward, not thinking about their own, but thinking about the God whom they should be serving and by correlate, serving the people who God has placed in their lives. Greater love had no man than he lay his life down for his brother. You hear that? It says love is at the heart of any and all true manifestations of good stewardship. First for God and then for your friend. Now, ultimately, every earthly relationship will include some level of disappointment, pain, and letdown. But guess what? That falls right under the headings of all things work together for good for those who love God and, and are called according to his purpose. You don't believe me? Wife, ask yourself this question. If your husband were perfect, would you ever turn to God for the resources that he had? Wife, 
I said I ain't gonna mess with wives this morning. I am moving. Ask yourself that question. Would we turn to God if things in our lives were perfect? No, we would not. And so in your stewardship, recognize that things will not be perfect, but that's why we forgive one another in love. That's why we continue to serve one another in love. Friendships, man should not be alone, we're told. You know what the greatest friendship that ever existed was? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From eternity past, loving each other wonderfully. And out of that, you know what happened? The Father didn't say, let me see what I can take for myself. The Son didn't say, let me see what I can get for myself. The Spirit didn't say, let me go down and have everything to myself. No, the Father gave the Son out of love. The Son sacrificed himself for you, gave himself to you out of love. And the Spirit continues to distill himself out of love. Love is at the linchpin of it all. Friendship is at the heart of the way we express the love that God has distilled upon us and towards us. If you do not know Christ, you will never know the love and the peace that passes all understanding. You will never be able to do that which I have just said, which is to give of yourself in a a sacrificial manner and thus be able to experience what the Bible said. It is better to give than to receive. But if you know Christ, I am saying to you, challenge yourself to ask yourself, am I loving? Am I what the Bible says? He who would have friends must first be friendly. Am I doing these things? Am I glorifying the Lord in these ways? And if not, the good thing about our Lord is you can start right now. We who are his, the Bible says, can fall seven times and get right back up again. Why? Because he who started a good work in us is going to complete it until the day of our Lord. God has given us those wonderful children that we have. He's given us the friendships that we have. Let us work those out in the way that his word has called us to so that we might glorify him, enjoy not just him, but those things that he has given us for our pleasure, for his glory, and for our good. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. Again, everything that we have belongs to you. And you, out of the abundance of your love, has given it to us, not just to labor, not just to work, but to to enjoy the things that you've given us. You are a good God and you give good gifts. All good things, your word tells us, come from above. And so the friendships that we have, the children that we have, they all come from you. We confess that we have blown it in so many ways and often enough. But we thank you for your grace and ask that you would even now enable us and empower us to recognize the ways that you would have us to live out the stewardship that you've given us, to love our neighbors, to love our friends deeply the way Christ loved his disciples, his apostles, and poured themselves into them. 
to love our children and to recognize that they're yours, to give them to you daily so that you might work in and through them your purposes, your grace, ultimately that you would draw them to yourself through your, our, your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, would you give us a heart to take hold of these things that we've heard and to implement them in ways that would glorify you in all that we do and say. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.